Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join in, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about tobacco control and policymaking with Mark Greenwald. Mark is an attorney and adjunct professor of law at Georgetown Law and senior consultant for the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. So uh, tell me a little bit about your how you became involved with tobacco control. Well, I've been in Washington for many years. I was in government, uh, my first job out of law school, including a stint with uh, Senator Ribicoff mm. uh, from Connecticut. Sure. Um, and then I'd been in uh, private practice for about 27 years doing uh, complex civil litigation. And I thought there must be more to life than this. <laughs> and I was looking for something in the uh, public sector. And there was an opportunity to become the first chief counsel for tobacco for the National Association of Attorneys General because they just entered into the master settlement agreement with the major tobacco companies, and they wanted an experienced litigator to run the settlement for all the states. So that was a, a unique opportunity. Uh, I went there, and I've been doing tobacco control ever since. So remind us, when was that settlement or that agreement um I'm thinking in the 2000s, but maybe it's earlier. When was that? That's back. No, the agreement was actually executed in 1998. Wow, I'm getting old. <laughs> I'm just saying, it seems sooner, than, more recent than that. 1998, okay. And it, it was the result of litigation that was initiated in 1994. Right. Uh, first by uh, Attorney General Mike Moore of Mississippi. As opposed to the filmmaker, Michael Moore. Right. <laughs> who might have done that, but. Right. Well, actually, Mike Moore uh, did have a, a, a brief uh, uh, film career playing himself. He had a, a cameo role as Attorney General Mike Moore in a movie called uh, The Informer. Is that right? Which uh, you may recall, which was about uh, a tobacco industry scientist uh, who came over from the dark side, bringing with him uh, a, a treasure trove of documents. Huh. And Mike played himself. Uh, fun facts to know and tell, right? Right. Oh, there are lots of, uh, lots of wonderful stories in, in this area. So you came on board uh, for the attorneys general once the settlement uh, was being implemented, I guess. Is that right? Right, right. They had the settlement. Uh, and it was about 150 pages long. Uh, and uh, in order to get the settlement, of course, uh, there had to be compromises made 
uh, and a lot of ambiguous language put into the agreement. You don't mm. get an agreement sure. uh, without some conscious ambiguity. So there were the conscious ambiguities, and then there were the unconscious ambiguities, right. the unintended problems. But we knew that there were going to be problems because we're dealing with the world's most litigious industry. Right. We knew there was going to be litigation over the meaning of the agreement and over the implementation of it, and there certainly was. And so did you work state by state? I know that each state had its uh, quite a lot of leeway, as I recall, in terms of how they used their tobacco money. Or was yes. this around how much money they were going to get? No, this was all uh, about the enforcement of the many uh, public health provisions. I see. Restricting the advertising, promotion, and marketing of tobacco, and also about the payments. Mm -hmm. It was not, unfortunately, about how the states would spend their money. Right. So the Attorney General had no official role in that process. It's the, the legislatures and the governors that determine how the money is to be spent or misspent. Uh, because uh, the idea was that a portion of this m money, a substantial portion of it, was going to be used for tobacco control. Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, the result has been very disappointing. Is that right? Uh, the legislatures, of course, are political bodies, and they respond to political pressures. And it turns out that tobacco control has not been an effective constituency for itself politically. Hmm. As a result, a number of states have spent little or nothing on tobacco control although a lot of them have spent a great deal of the money on public health. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not been a waste by any means. But it hasn't been the bonanza for tobacco control that was expected. Hmm. Yeah, I know in Maryland, uh, where I used to work, uh, a large bulk of this money went to grants to the major academic institutions, both Johns Hopkins and University of Maryland medical centers, some of which I think was really from, from a public health epidemiology perspective, but some of it was sort of more laboratory science, somehow related to tobacco and cancer, but not, I know, not sort of hard on all control issues for sure. Well, Maryland was actually one of the most responsible states. They right. had a, a, an excellent uh, tobacco control program and some very good people. Other states didn't do as well. How effective do you think the whole settlement has been in terms of uh, taming, if you will, the egregious misbehaviors of big tobacco as well as impact on um, tobacco education, um, tobacco use rates? Uh, can you enlighten us at all about that? It sounds like you're a little disappointed, at least in terms of the tobacco control side. Uh, we're disappointed with how the money has been spent. Many things, uh, however, uh, uh, have been uh, extremely beneficial. Uh, really, this was a, a watershed because I, I think you can you can divide the history of tobacco and tobacco control in the United States uh, into three phases. Uh, cigarettes became very popular about the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for the first 50 or 60 years, of course, they were causing all kinds of health problems, but people were pretty much unaware of what those problems were. 
course, the companies became aware of it before the general public did. But until about 1964, with the first Surgeon General's report right. on tobacco, uh, we really uh, didn't know what the health effects of tobacco were. And then that was the first period. And that's when, of course, tobacco became uh, extremely popular in the United States when you had smoking rates close to 50% of all adults in the United States smoking right. cigarettes. Cigarettes were everywhere. And then we had another period, a second period from, oh, say, about 1964 with the uh, Surgeon General's report coming out till about the mid-1990s when we knew cigarette smoking was a major public health problem, but we didn't do very much about it mm -hmm. from a policy perspective. And then when the attorneys general brought suit, that, I think that's the third phase, beginning about 1994 with the lawsuits brought by the attorneys general that really started to change public attitudes uh, about smoking. Uh, and millions of pages of documents were released from uh, the uh, archives of tobacco companies and the law firms that worked for them. Right. And these documents demonstrated that tobacco companies uh, had misrepresented the health effects of cigarettes, that they'd suppressed research, that they'd misrepresented the effects of secondhand smoke, that they'd targeted kids, that they'd misrepresented the addictiveness of nicotine, all these things were demonstrated and laid out for the public. And so attitudes changed as a result. And as a result of the change in attitudes, you saw public policies changing. Hmm. You have to realize that tobacco control is unlike other epidemics. Uh, it's an epidemic that's caused by the conduct of the tobacco industry. And it's an epidemic that needs to be addressed through public policies. So we began to see many things, such as substantial increases in tobacco taxes, mm -hmm. which had the result of increasing the price of cigarettes, which is probably the best way to discourage, to, people. to discourage people from smoking, especially mm -hmm. kids right. who don't have a lot of disposable income. Right. You saw the beginning of smoke-free laws. In 1994, California was the first state to pass a smoke-free smoke law. Now, about two-thirds of the population of the United States lives in jurisdictions where smoking is not permitted in public places, in workplaces, in bars, in restaurants. And the Master Settlement Agreement was part of this because it restricted the advertising and promotion and marketing of cigarettes. And it also imposed obligations to pay huge amounts of money on the major tobacco companies. And of course, they passed through those costs in the prices of cigarettes. <laughs> They have that has it, it really hasn't affected the profitability of the companies. Right. But they sell now only about half the number of cigarettes in the United States that they were selling before the settlement. And then they but dump them still in the third world, right? Money. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, but the uh, the price rises that have been caused by the by the settlement and by the increases in the federal excise tax and by tax increases in virtually every state since the master settlement. Those things have all contributed to very substantial increases in the price of cigarettes. Cigarettes now cost an average of almost $6 a pack. Hmm. And many places in the United States, uh, it's more than that. Hmm. Uh, and that that's really changed um, the, uh, the consumption of cigarettes and the prevalence rates. And we've seen a remarkable decline. Uh, Kids were smoking uh, at the rate about 36% of, of 12th graders were smoking hmm. at the time of the Master Settlement Agreement. Now it's 13.6%. Wow. That's a 63% decline. That's really quite remarkable. Uh -huh. And there have been a, a substantial decline in the adult smoking rate uh, as well. Uh, and and these are, these are, uh, this has been brought about both by the Master Settlement Agreement, and very significantly by policies that states and the federal government and municipal jurisdictions as well have implemented since the agreement. But the most important thing, I think, is really the change in attitude on the part of the American public that's come about as a result of what took place in the 1990s and what's continued to take place uh, since then. So I, I think the, the master settlement agreement and the whole movement that was sparked by the attorneys general in the 90s has had a very profound and positive effect. Well, that's a really fascinating perspective, and I'm definitely going to want to take this up again after our break. Um, but right now, we are going to take a short break for Medical Minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the fascinating history of tobacco control and current status and progress in tobacco control with attorney Mark Greenwald. The American Cancer Society estimates that there will be 75,000 new cases of melanoma in the U.S. this year, with over a thousand of these patients living in Connecticut. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. Early detection is the key, and when detected early, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence, SPORE, in Skin Cancer Grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm talking tonight with my guest, Mark Greenwald, about his work in tobacco control. Mark, before the um, break, you were uh, 
really telling this fascinating, uh, compelling story uh, about the change in attitudes and uh, and change in actual use of tobacco in the United States uh, that that uh, derives at least in part from this great uh, tobacco litigation and tobacco settlement. And and I'm fascinated by what you said about um, change in attitudes. Certainly, we have known as a public uh, about the harms of tobacco for quite a long time. It seems to me that that um, the social acceptance of tobacco use was on the decline, I would think, well before then, but, but maybe not. Do you, do you think it's really people, people got upset with the tobacco companies because of the uh, knowledge of their deception, or, was, or do you really think it was the actual implementation of policy that made it difficult to smoke, that people got to start People like me, who are non-smokers, uh, became much more verbal and in people's faces. I mean, what do you think drove that change in attitude as a society? Well, I think it's it's uh, it's both things: the the change in in attitude and the policies that were implemented. Of course, policies don't get implemented out of the blue sky. Sure, they get implemented because there's been a change in public attitudes and political pressure uh, to make changes. But let me give you an example. Uh, that will show uh, what uh, the problems really were before the Master Settlement Agreement. Uh, In 1993, in response to uh, a a feisty effort by a smaller tobacco company, but still a major, called Liggett, in the, who was trying to uh, cut the price of cigarettes in order to increase their market share. Philip Morris, the dominant company with Marlboro that has 40% of the U.S. market, decided they were going to deal with this upstart by slashing the price of Marlboros, which they did very suddenly uh, uh, in April of 1993. Sharp decline in the price of Marlboros. Uh, And, of course, every other tobacco company had to follow suit. Well, you can see in the youth smoking numbers, beginning in 1993, a huge spike in youth smoking. Hmm. And that lasts until the Master Settlement Agreement. Hmm. And, you know, that's not just a spike on a chart. That's hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of kids smoking cigarettes because the price had been cut, who otherwise wouldn't have been, Mm -hmm. and getting addicted to cigarettes because nicotine is extremely addictive, and when kids experiment with cigarettes, they become addicted, and they become lifetime slaves to this product. Right. And so if you follow that cohort, that generation forward, the generation that was in high school between 1993 and 1998, Mm -hmm. you will see their smoking rate remains elevated above that for other cohorts. Hmm. So there was a permanent change in the public health of millions of Americans as a result of the price of tobacco. Wow. So there's... I, that's it's astonishing. It's, and, and another thing that was going on at that time, of course, 
was Joe Camel. Right, sure. People who were old enough to remember Joe. Joe was immensely popular with little kids. He was a cartoon character. He was a cartoon character. He was uh, very, uh, very affable. Cool. And he was selling camels. Yeah. And camels were the cool brand for kids to smoke. Uh, So things really were different then. Joe Camel was banned by the Master Agreement. The use of cartoon characters. So there have things weren't uh, things were very different before the mid 1990s. We've had a sea change in attitudes. We've had a sea change in policies, and we've had a sea change in results. Mm -hmm. That's what really counts. What do you think about the rise of uh, smokeless tobacco products, and in particular e-cigarettes, vaping? Um, it seems like this is increasingly uh, popular uh, in in people who are trying to stop smoking, which may be a good thing, it's debated, as well as in the youth who's avoiding smoking, but now they've got bubblegum flavors and so on. What, what What's your take on all that? It's, it's currently very poorly or a little regulated, it seems to me. You're absolutely right. It's not regulated at all. E-cigarettes present a very serious and challenging problem, primarily because of their impact on kids. In 2012, only about 1.5% of the age cohort from 12 to 17 was using e-cigarettes. That tripled from 2012 to 2013, and then it tripled again from 2013 to 2014. So in 2014, the last year for which we have data, 13.5% of kids were using e-cigarettes. And one of the reasons for that is that the industry is targeting kids in their Advertising, You can see it in the content of their ads, and as you mentioned, Steve, in the use of flavors that are particularly popular with, with kids, sweet flavors, flavors with names like gummy bears. Who, 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 who is going to be attracted to, to gummy bears? It's not going to be somebody who wants to quit smoking. I have a lot of it's colleagues a, who like gummy bears. Okay, well, maybe so. Um, But the reason this is a terrible problem is because e-cigarettes deliver nicotine to the lungs. Right. That's just like... uh, Exactly. uh, Tobacco. uh, Like like tobacco. Uh, And nicotine is highly addictive, especially when delivered to the lungs, because there's a close pathway from the lungs to the brain. And there's a real danger that kids who initiate tobacco use with e-cigarettes are going to become addicted to nicotine when they think they're just doing nothing more than experimenting with an interesting new product. Mm -hmm. And it's possible that kids who become addicted to nicotine will then progress to smoking combusted cigarettes because the nicotine fix from combusted cigarettes is a lot more satisfying than what they get from e-cigarettes. So even though e-cigarettes may not contain the hundreds of cancer-causing chemicals that occur in combusted cigarettes, the fact that they deliver nicotine to the lungs of millions of kids, that fact is extremely disturbing. Mm. 
Now, on the other hand, it's possible, as you said, that e-cigarettes may be an effective way for existing adult smokers, particularly those who find it very hard to quit, to actually quit smoking. And there's no question that if an existing smoker quits smoking completely and switches to e-cigarettes, they will have lowered their health risks. But whatever benefit e-cigarettes may confer on those smokers, it's really not appropriate for that benefit to be purchased at the expense of addicting our children to nicotine. Yeah. That is not a good deal. It's imperative that this product be regulated. So what is the strategy to, to, to get that to happen? What, what are the barriers to getting the FDA or whomever uh, to take this on? Yeah. You know, it doesn't have the big tobacco lobby, does it? Or, or is there a surreptitious ownership of the e-cigarette industry by big tobacco? Uh, big tobacco is involved in the e-cigarette industry. The two major U.S. companies both have uh, uh, important e-cigarette products. Mm. There, are, there are hundreds of e-cigarette companies, though, maybe thousands of e-cigarette companies. So the market is much more diffuse than it is for cigarettes. But, but the, the, the question is, why doesn't FDA use its authority? FDA has had authority since 2009 to regulate all tobacco products. In 2011, it said it was going to regulate e-cigarettes, but it took the FDA three years even to issue a proposed rule. They issued a proposed rule in April of 2014. Three weeks from now, it's going to be two years since that proposed rule has been pending, and still we haven't seen a final rule. Now, this is an enormous public health problem. Huge numbers of kids have become exposed to e-cigarettes in the time FDA has been considering its proposed rule. It's essential that the promotion of e-cigarettes to kids be reined in. It's essential that the American public be guaranteed that if e-cigarettes are going to be on the market, they're manufactured in accordance with good manufacturing pra uh, practices. Mm -hmm. You know, virtually all the e-cigarettes sold in the United States are manufactured in China. Right. We have no idea, really, what's in all these products. Mm -hmm. We have no idea how many of them are defectively manufactured, there need to be standards. There needs to be regulation. And the White House and FDA, and I really do fault the White House uh, on this because political support for doing something starts with the leadership and that leadership has not been there hmm. on this issue. It's time to make this rule final. It's time to do what needs to be done about e-cigarettes. And we're not talking about eliminating them. We're talking about responsible regulation, which even most of the companies 
advocate. That's fascinating. You know, uh, particularly given the First Lady's interest in childhood obesity, this would seem like kind of a no-brainer um, extension of uh, her interest in uh, youth health um, that, uh, you know, that you would think that, they, that the White House would be very interested in promoting. Well, I think everybody's heart is in the right place. Sure. And there are a lot of issues Competing that they issues, have right? to deal with. And that's why I, I, I talked at the beginning about political will and the need for a public health issue to have a constituency that speaks for it. And without public pressure to do something about this issue, even people of goodwill who have many things on their plates exactly. may not see this as something Urgent. they have to do now, right. which is why it's important for the public to make its views known, to make its views known to the White House that two years to consider a proposed rule about regulating e-cigarettes, that's way too long. It's certainly long enough. And we would hope that sometime before the second anniversary of the promulgation of this rule, we'd see it moved to final rule status. Mm, makes sense. What, what, how does the cost of uh, these e-cigarettes and vaping compare to the cost uh, of uh, combustible cigarettes, which, as you pointed out, uh, took smoking cigarettes a little bit out of the range of many adolescents? Well, it's a little bit difficult to compare since the products are different. And mm -hmm. with e-cigarettes, there's a certain outlay that you have to make to uh, get the at, machine. At, at the beginning. But in general, e-cigarettes are less expensive uh, per unit of nicotine than, than cigarettes, largely because they're not subject to taxes. I mean, there are very few jurisdictions. The federal government does not uh, have a, an excise tax on uh e-cigarettes, and most state governments uh, don't have it either, so they're a lot cheaper than cigarettes, and that's been one of the reasons for their popularity. Mark Greenwald is an attorney and adjunct professor of law at Georgetown Law and senior consultant for the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888 234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudet, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.